Our sermon this morning is found in Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. I was told this week uh, that my sermons are long, which I, tr- which I trusted was a compliment. Uh, I will tell you that I, f- I believe you'll find following uh, perhaps longer sermons than you're used to easier if you have a Bible in your lap. And what we'll do is we'll just go verse by verse. And so you have a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You'll find our text on page 5. It's Genesis 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of, of cl- clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry ground in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Father in heaven, we now come to a time where we would like to hear from you. And specifically, we come to hear of this day of terrible judgment. 
outpouring of wrath. These are not things that we think of often, things that we find uncomfortable and troubling, and yet are truths that your scripture presents to us. So may we be faithful to you this morning and not to our own heart's desire to escape troubling themes. May we be faithful to you and listen through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At 7 a.m. on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, two U.S. military officers, one naval and one army, were headed out to play a round of golf. As they looked outside on what I trust they considered a beautiful day, they were unaware that 175 Japanese planes were just over 100 miles from their location. The two men who were caught by this surprise, the first being Admiral Kimmel, who led the fleet at Pearl Harbor, the other being Lieutenant General Walter C. Short, commander of all military forces in Hawaii. Before they left for their round of golf, the sky was split apart by unexpected assault, and I trust nothing has been the same since. I believe there is a day coming in which Jesus Christ will ride on the clouds of heaven with the army of angels at his back as he comes in judgment upon his enemies. I believe he comes to make war. I believe also that there are many people who will find out on that unexpecting day that their assurance of heaven is blown apart and that they themselves are sinking forever in a place far worse than the Pacific Ocean. I believe that many people believe they are Christians because they simply affirm a set of theological facts or did some religious act when they were young, but have no love for Jesus and no desire to follow him. I believe by scripture, if they persist in that state, the coming day of the Lord will be a day of unending terror and suffering. And so today, because of the text that is before us, I plan to give a warning of coming wrath. I also plan to give an invitation for all who would flee from that wrath to come into Christ. But I not only speak to those who may happen to be here who are not Christians, I speak to Christians as well. In fact, I hope primarily so. And my hope is that Christian, as we consider the holiness and the wrath of God, that in your heart you will rejoice over the mercy in which you have been received through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so my hope is that sober joy will be planted in your heart today, a weighty joy that shall carry you through life. We'll certainly work our way through this text in three steps. The first being wrath is delayed. Second, wrath is avoided. Third, wrath is executed. I will tell you before we even begin in the text, this is a hard message. I'd rather talk to you about Jesus hanging out with children or healing the blind or calling short men out of sycamore trees. I'd rather tell you this morning and preach on God's love and compassion and God's grace and mercy. But not only is our God gracious and merciful, he is also holy and righteous. And my job, I believe, as I understand it from God's word, is to preach to you his word. That's why I preach through books, to be perfectly honest, because I do not have enough integrity to choose texts like this on my own. I'm forced to preach them 
as we work our way verse by verse through the scripture which God has given us. And here we come to perhaps one of the most troubling chapters in all of scripture. And I'll tell you, I can never understand why it is that we decorate our children's nursery with this story. Or fill our children's library with, with books about this tale. It doesn't make sense to me. I can't imagine putting a, my daughter or son down with their painted on the wall, a nice ark with a giraffe poking its head out. And she would look at daddy and say, Daddy, why is the giraffe in the boat? I would have to say I trust something like because God is killing everybody else who's not on the boat. Good night, sweetheart. Sleep well. Uh, This is not a child story. This is a story of the unveiling of God's holy wrath. And it should, I think, cause us to tremble. Our tendency is not to look at hard truths. Our tendency is, even when they're in front of us, to ignore them and just focus in on drafts in arcs and how they get, are saved, but never ask the question, why do they need to be saved in the first place? The Bible forces us to focus on these things, even if they're sobering and uncomfortable. And so here we are today. Of course, we know in our study of Genesis that God created Adam and Eve upon a beautiful world, put them there, provided for them blessing untold, and they decided that they would not trust God, they would not love God, they would not submit to Him, and so they switched teams and joined with the devil. Things have been going downhill ever since. And for 1,600 years up till Genesis chapter 7, God looks upon the earth and things keep getting worse and worse and worse. They're they're not getting better. And so we get to Genesis 6-5, which kind of starts this whole flood narrative. And we saw a number of weeks ago that God looked down and saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of his thoughts, the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So God looks and all he sees is sin. And the God's response is in verse 6 of chapter 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You see, he became heartbroken over what we have become. All this rebellion in which we have given ourselves to, that people want to be what they shouldn't and do what they shouldn't and say what they shouldn't, and God sees it, and that's all He sees. And He decides that He is not going to let this continue forever, this sin and this rebellion, this wickedness, this death, this evil. He's been waiting 1,600 years for someone to fix it, for someone to get it right, for someone to repent and bow their knee, and no one does. And so God decides in verse 7, to flood this world in judgment. For we see in chapter 6 and verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm going to wipe them all out. But that's not where the Bible ends. It doesn't end in Genesis 6-7. In fact, there is a verse 8 as we see, But... Right? This beautiful and glorious but that we see in Scripture time and again. That God says, I will do this, but there is hope. But this is not all I will do. But you will not only see judgment, it will be tempered with grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God says, I will not be defeated by sin. I will not let you win in wickedness. 
I will continue on. I will provide a redeemer. I will begin by saving Noah. God makes him a Christian. Noah responds by becoming righteous and blameless. And the Bible says in verse 9 that he walked with God. He says, God, I just want to walk with you. Wherever you go, that's where I want to go. Whatever you say to do, that's what I want to do. I'm just going to go with you and do what you tell me to do, which is a good thing because God has something for him to do. God says, I'm going to flood this world in 120 years. I want you to build a boat 40, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Because in 120 years, I'm flooding this world. We see in Genesis 6 and verse 22, Noah did this, all that the Lord God commanded him. He did it. And so now 120 years have passed. The ark is complete. And we pick up the story In chapter 7 and verse 1, as we consider, first of all, that wrath is delayed. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He says, The work is done, Noah. Time to board. It's time to get on the ship. Of course, Noah is not alone, as we see in verse 2. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. And so, as he was previously told, Noah not only will get on board with his family, but he will bring all these animals on board. This is the first time, however, that we have this differentiation between the clean animals and the unclean animals. And he says, okay, bring a pair of the unclean animals, but then he says, I want you to bring seven pairs of the clean animals. But interesting, I don't know if you notice, there's probably a footnote in your Bible next to verse 2, and this could be read, not seven pairs of clean animals, but seven of each kind of clean animal. So rather than 14 of these clean animals, one option is to understand that Noah would bring seven of these clean animals, which is what I I probably believe happened. Of course, the question is, well, why bring seven of something on the ark? Well, we know when in chapter 9, when Noah gets off the ark, the first thing he does is he begins to sacrifice animals. He begins to sacrifice these clean animals. And so it seems that scripture is saying, well, there's three pairs for God and the seventh, three pairs to repopulate the earth. The seventh belongs to the Lord, which Noah will sacrifice. And so we see Noah and his family being told to get ready to get on board. All the animals are coming to him. It's time to get on. And of course, what we expect, therefore, is that the flood is coming, right? Get on the boat. The wrath is imminent. The rain is about to start to fall. But interestingly, that's not what we read as we see in verse 4. For in seven days I will say in rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. He says, get everything on because wrath will come in seven days. You, you see what God is doing? He is once again waiting. For 1,600 years he waited. For another 120 years, he waited, and now he gives seven more days in patient waiting for repentance and faith. And God is patient. He does not need to wait. He does not need to warn before uh, he sends judgment. But he does. This is what God constantly is doing throughout Scripture. Warning, then waiting. Warning, then waiting. Warning, then waiting. He has warned us even as we've heard read from Scripture today. And now he is in a period of wait because God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live, he told us through the prophet Ezekiel. And so God delays wrath. He gives even 
one more week. Well, you see Noah's response to this in verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. There is dutiful Noah again. All he and his family begin to board. The animals begin to come. Well, we see his family comes in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the water of the floods. Now, I, I don't, uh, clearly I wasn't there for this, and, and neither were you. Um, but I, I like to think about what, what it must have been like when Noah began to finish building the ark and now start getting ready for his voyage, if you will. Uh, I, I imagine that would cause quite a stir in the neighborhood. That there are the Noahs, and they're, they're emptying out their house. They're carrying a bed aboard, and there goes a chest of drawers, and he's got his photo albums under his arm, and... and uh, there's the family Bible being brought on board. And I, I trust that, that people begin to comment. People begin to stir. People begin to take notice as all the waters and, and, and supplies were, were being brought on board. I don't think it's much of a guess to say that crowds begin to perhaps even gather to see them load up this ark and prepare for this trip. And, of course, it wasn't just Noah boarding, but we see in verse 8 that he had company, as God had promised, of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of the birds and of everything that creeps creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And so we have all these animals beginning to bore. Now, I understand that we get to passage like this, people begin to check out. Um, they say, okay, Stephen, clearly this is a myth. This is a fable. Right? I mean, the boat with every species of animal on it. I mean, this is why we think it's a child's story, because it simply couldn't have happened. And uh, clearly, I'm not an expert on these matters of how many animals fit on a boat. Um, but I, I did do a little research I thought you might find interesting. And I, I tried to confine all my research to non-Christian um, websites. And so purely um, scientific websites that do not have a Christian bent and all. I did find out that on the earth there are 4,000 species of mammals, 9,000 species of birds, 6,000 species of reptiles, and 6,000 species of amphibians, which makes about 25,000 different species upon the earth that don't live in the water. Now, we know the ark is 450 feet wide, long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It's, by the way, larger than any other vessel that mankind ever constructed until the year 1858 when they finally built a boat bigger than Noah's. It was 1.4 million cubic feet. A boat of this size, from what I have been uh, uh, researched, could hold as many as 125,000 animals the size of a sheep. But most of these animals, the, the vast majority of these animals, would be much, much smaller than a sheep. And so in my limited mind, in my understanding, it seems perfectly plausible that all these animals could fit on the ark. I'm not quite sure how they got along. To be perfectly honest, an alligator next to a wildebeest or a cheetah and a gazelle rooming together, but evidently God must have sent some peace upon them. It seems to me that God brought them to Noah, and that Noah wasn't out collecting them, that God would send them. And, and I believe God can do this. He brought animals before Adam, as we saw in Genesis chapter 2. We'll see in Exodus that God sends gnats and flies and locusts and frogs. He sends quails to feed the Jews, ravens to feed Elijah, a whale to swallow Jonah, a worm to swallow Jonah's vine. Jesus commands fish to jump in a boat, and he even has a donkey serve as a prophet. So I don't have any trouble with God commanding animals to get aboard a boat. Now, I, I do understand what I'm saying it happened here is a miraculous event. This is miraculous. This is not natural. But it's not mythical. It's not a fable. 
It doesn't defy any laws that we know of. And these animals heard the call of God and they came aboard like Noah's family. They obeyed. And now if Noah loading up the the ark didn't get your attention, I think the hippopotamus walking by your front porch would have. I mean, you could imagine the little boy saying, Dad, there's a monkey riding an elephant and he's going to old man Noah's house. I imagine people begin to take notice of these, this menagerie of thousands and thousands of species approaching this boat, 25,000 species. And the Bible tells us they all get aboard. They're all in that boat. And then what happens? Well, nothing. Nothing happens. For seven days, nothing happens. This crowd there that, that would, would be gathered to see what's going on, at least to see a, a panda bear or a platypus or a porcupine. Clearly, people must have gathered around to see this. And with that, at that time, not this preacher of righteousness that the Bible tells us, his skin tanned through a life of labor, his face deeply lined through his 600 years of life, perhaps his head bald and his back hunched, extend his calloused hands and begin to invite people to come aboard this ship. Would he not say, wrath is coming. Time is short. Won't you come aboard? Would he not call for them? And you consider this God who's giving them this opportunity, whose law has been trampled and his honor has been defamed and his creation has been corrupted. And those who are supposed to be his image bearers, his likeness, all they do is rebel and applaud sin and despise the only one who remains good. And what does this God do in the face of this rebellion? He waits. He waits. He waits, perhaps wondering, is there anyone who would bend their knee in tearful confession? Is there anyone who would cry out for forgiveness in broken repentance? Is there anyone who would receive grace in loud jubilation? Is there anyone who would flee from the downpour of God's wrath and seek shelter in his divine grace? And so he waits day one and nothing happens. He waits day two and nothing happens. He waits day three and nothing happens. He waits day four and nothing happens. He waits day five and nothing happens. Day six, nothing happens. Day seven, he waits and nothing happens. But he would not wait forever. For we read in verse 10, And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. We see now that not only after God had delayed wrath, we see through Noah, secondly, that wrath is avoided. Now again, I know people consider this to be a fable and a myth, especially in the country we live in in the 21st century. And whether it's a myth or a fable, I I don't think the Bible leaves us the option to consider that it's being presented as a myth. In other words, this story may not be true. I believe it to be. But at least whoever wrote this passage thinks it's true. He wants to convince you that it's true. I mean, you see this here in verse 11, the date that he gives. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on that 17th day of the month. We don't do this with fables. We don't pinpoint the exact dates in which these things happen. You see, it's being presented to us as a historical event. It's trying to convince us that it's true. There's dates we don't forget. 
Uh, we all, I, I trust, remember this Wednesday was September 11th, and many during our prayer meeting took note of that and were praying for our land and for this world. Well, back in this day, you never forgot the 600th year on, on the second month, the 17th day. This was etched in their mind. This was a date that they remembered. In fact, it's interesting to me when I consider whether this is a myth or not, is that almost every ancient civilization has a story, a flood story. They all have it. They, almost every single one, you'd be hard to find an ancient civilization that does not have a story about a cataclysmic flood. In fact, most of these civilizations speak of a favored family, a survival due to a boat, a flood due to rebellion, the animals were saved. Some of them speak of birds being sent out, rainbows coming out afterwards, and the boat ending up on a mountain. Of course, many of them are distorted. In fact, all of them are distorted except Scripture. Most of them speak of the gods actually fearing the floodwaters and cowering before them and are amazed that anyone survived. But what's interesting to me is this wide distribution of a story very similar to the one that we have in Scripture, in my mind, points to a common source. It points to a, a, a real memory that these civilizations once had. In fact, one, one thing that's different about the other stories is the, boat, the dimensions of Noah's boat are always different. The, the other probably most famous uh, flood narrative, ancient flood narrative, is the story of Gilgamesh. And he gives his dimensions of his boat. Interestingly enough, if you were to build that boat or one to the ratio which uh, is given, you put it in the water, it, would, it wouldn't float for a second. It would sink immediately right to the bottom of the sea. We have found out that Noah's dimensions, Noah's boat would almost be impossible to capsize. In fact, this six to one ratio that the Bible gives us of building this boat, according to uh, uh, naval architecture, the science of naval architecture is the most stable ratio for boat building, and therefore all modern seagoing vessels are built to the same ratio that we see in Genesis chapter 6. And so there's much to commend it to believe. We see that Noah went on this very seaworthy boat in verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark. They obey, they get aboard, as Noah constantly is showing us this willingness to obey. If God told you, listen, in seven days, I'm going to flood this world, time to get on board. I wonder what you would think or what I would think. I wonder if we would argue with God. I wonder if we would be upset or think, what kind of God are you? But it's not Noah. It's not the picture. We get. He's just constantly obeying, doing what God told him to do. He reminds me of Mary in that way. Remember when the angel came to Mary and said, okay, Mary, this is the plan. She says, okay, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever you want. And this, I get the picture of Noah. okay, God, there's no fight or argument. There's no dishonor or disobedience. He just does everything that God commands him to do. I think we would do well to follow this example, not to bargain with God or argue with him or to ignore him or to disobey him. That God, I think, continually speaks to us. And perhaps he will be kind enough to speak to you this morning through his word. And what God int intends for you to do is to obey what he tells you, whether he speaks to you through the word or through preaching or circumstances or people or the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in your life. He intends for you to obey him, not half-heartedly, not sometimes later, but he intends for you to unquestionably do what he calls you to do. Trusting that God is good and that his commands are good for you. 
Well, Noah obeys, and not only Noah, but you see there in verse 13 that Noah's family, his sons come aboard, and his wife and his son's wives, and we consider the blessing that it must have been to have Noah as your dad last time, that God constantly seems throughout Scripture to grab someone, usually a man, make him a patriarch, and say, not only will I bless you and fix your life, but I'm going to bless your family through you. And that blessing is going to descend upon your children and even your grandchildren and on through the generations because of what? I plan to do in your life. Now, it's not foolproof. And I want to make sure I'm clear about this because last week I may not have been clear. It doesn't mean that, that if you follow God, every one of your children is going to follow God. In fact, we'll see later on that one of uh, Noah's son is a total bum, right? Um, and, and so he's not following God at all. But I want you to see that Noah's family is blessed because their daddy and their husband walks with God. And so Noah obeys. We see verse 14. Um, that the animals here are coming aboard, as we see repeated, they, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. So creation obeys, Noah obeys, his family obeys, the beasts obey, the livestock obey, the, the birds obey, even the, the creeping things, they obey. But the people of the world, they're not obeying, which has been the problem from the very beginning. <laughs> it's been the problem. You trace that back to the garden. They're not, they're not going to obey. And so they will not obey. That continues today. We won't obey the God who has made us. And so with this, this picture, with Noah and all these animals aboard, we read in verse 16, And those who ent- that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded. And because God commanded him, and his family, they're saved. They, they obey and they, they trust the Lord and they get on board. And because of that, the wrath of God is avoided by them. Now, can you imagine that day in which Noah came aboard that ark and, and his family, all the animals there? Can, can you just picture that in your mind's eye, if you will? What would that have been like? Because you know the wrath is coming and you stand in the doorway and you see the, the crowds in front of you, perhaps some in drunken revelry or others in in violent tyranny, or perhaps you hear shouts of curses or blasphemy upon your so-called God. And maybe your eyes lift a little bit off the crowd and you see over in the villages on the hillside and you see men at work in the fields and children at play and perhaps women chatting at the well. And you look around upon this world as you stand there with your sons and wife at your side and 25,000 species of animals at your back and your eyes move from the earth to the sky as it grows dark and the clouds begin to billow. Perhaps you would feel a rush of wind announcing a coming storm or, or hear the, the thunder crack of a nearby lightning strike. I wonder if you would reach out your hand to see if it was coming to confirm that the rain is here and you would feel a drop and then two. And now you know God will no longer wait. The end is here. I wonder what it would have been like if, if you had to shut that door. I, I trust Noah would have obeyed if God commanded him, it's time to shut the door. But I don't think that was Noah's job. In fact, I don't think it's ever our job to shut the door to grace. To shut the door to mercy. I believe that is left to God and God alone. And so we read in verse 16, And the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door. 
forever separating those who would avoid God's wrath and those who would endure it. As we consider lastly that wrath is executed. In verse 17, the Bible tells us the flood continued 40 days upon the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. Now that the door is shut, grace is no longer offered. Wrath now is unavoidable for all outside the ark. I wonder what that scene would have been like there as they sit huddled in the darkness of that ark. Perhaps the women softly crying as their husbands try to comfort them in their arms, maybe even privately hoping that this boat that they built will float. I wonder about the animals stirring in their stalls behind you. I wonder as you listen to the rain grow harder, maybe the creaks of the ark as the wind hammers it on its side. In time, I trust people would come to that ark. I trust they would bang on its side, saying, let us in. We believe Give us mercy. I believe they begged and cried as the survivors would huddle inside, perhaps trying to close their ears to this cry. You see, it was too late. The door could not be opened. To open the door, this part would doom everything. Let the waters in. Over time, of course, those knockings would grow less frequent and, and more distant. And then eventually there would just be silence. Nothing. And whatever grief you would feel in your heart at that day is just a pale shadow of the heartbreak that resides in a forsaken and jilted God as he exercised his wrath. We see in verse 18 that the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Eventually, the arch shifts and the massive structure begins to float in what once was a desert and now rises floating atop this now watery earth. It would continue to rise for we see in verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep or about 23 feet deep. You see, the water keeps rising and rising and rising and there is no stopping it. The result, the outcome of this flood is recorded in Scripture in verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. I trust the first to die were the elderly and the sick and those who could not climb or run. I trust there were others who did run, who did climb, who tried to avoid this occasion, hoping that the rain would stop, the waters would, would descend. The rain did not stop, and they died. There's perhaps young men who would climb up to mountains hoping to outrun the wrath of God, but it would find them there. They would not outrun it. And they would die. And perhaps at this time there were some who began to swim and tread water, but eventually they would grow exhausted and drown. Others, I trust, held on to floating debris, but dehydrated, they would perish. Everyone died. We're told that the Titanic is the worst maritime disaster in human history. There were 2,023 passengers on that boat when it struck an iceberg in April 1912. 
and sank to the bottom of the ocean. 706 of those passengers survived on lifeboats and other ships picking them up. 1,517 died mostly from hypothermia in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. But imagine for a moment if everyone on the boat lived. Everyone on the Titanic survived. But all the world beside was destroyed. It's the scale of the flood. Give a sense of the terror of this event. This is not best represented as a floating zoo. This is the outpouring of a holy God. There was a survivor, of course, in fact, eight of them, for we read in verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. There were eight survivors. See, God had given us 1,600 years, but all we had responded with was no repentance or love, worship, obedience, just more corruption, rebellion, and sin. God then gave mankind 120 years, and all they responded was with not more uh, worship or obedience or, or uh, repentance and love, but more corruption, rebellion, and sin. And then God said, okay, there's seven more days, but man did not give him the love and repentance, the worship and obedience, just more corruption and sin. And so in response, God, out of his justice, his good justice, killed everyone on the earth. The Bible tells us in verse 23, he blotted out every living thing. This is troubling. This is hard to consider. But I wonder what are the alternatives I mean, I think many people are tempted to read a passage like this and say, your God is a monster. Your God is evil and wicked. In fact, they do. There's scores of books that you could pick up that would make that same argument. But I wonder, what would they have God do? In fact, I appreciate Pastor Mark Driscoll who imagines the alternatives. Perhaps God could send a good example, a good man. Maybe there's someone who could stand out amongst all this corruption in order for people to follow. Well, he did that. He sent a man named Enoch who walked with God, and no one followed. Well, maybe God could give more time. Well, he he gave them thousands of years, and no one repented. Well, perhaps God could warn them. Well, he did at the very beginning. The day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And then everyone after that has been dying as God constantly warns people of the wages of sin. Well, perhaps God could send a preacher. Well, he did. For 120 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, proclaiming the coming of God's wrath. Well, well perhaps he could provide a way to escape. Well, he did. He gave a half full ark and invited whoever would come to come aboard. You see, I think we should realize that God has done above and beyond, and perhaps we should probably deserve a flood every day, and it's just by his merciful restraint that we do not get it. People are arrogant and independent and live their life without any thanks to a God who made them, who sustains them. They live with total disregard to him and his ways. This is how the Bible presents us. And God in great grace gave time and warning and examples and preachers and opportunities and people don't take it. You see, they'd rather, they'd rather swim on their own than repent of sin. They would rather run on their own than receive God's grace. They'd rather shake their fists at heaven and drown rather than bend their knee. And so everyone died. Of course, God is not doing what he had not been doing otherwise. 
Everyone's going to die. You do understand that, I trust. You're going to die and I'm going to die if Jesus does not come back. In fact, every day people die. Some of you had relatives die this week who I was praying for you and their families. I mean, people are dying every day. It's just happening all around us. But it doesn't get our attention because it's, it's just a few at a time. It doesn't seem to bother us much. But what happens when a bunch of people die at one time? Well, that seems to get our attention, doesn't it? If we push this inevitable death up to the very same day, well, we begin to focus on that. When God pulls back his hand of protection, there's an earthquake or a tsunami or a 9-11 event or chemical weapons in a faraway land. Well, then we get to be focused on death. Then God begins to get our, our, our attention as he asks us through these events, are you ready for your death? Are you prepared to meet God? His death is all around us. Now, I understand this is not a popular message to hear, and not even in churches. This is not how you build a church, preach messages like this. Because we want to hear that God is just merciful and loving, and, and we, we like to hear that we're the good people, and therefore God blesses us, and we like to hear that our sin is not so bad, and we like to hear that the door never shuts, and everyone makes it aboard, and therefore there's nothing to worry about, there's nothing to fear. The problem with that message is the Bible tells us something different. That yes, God is merciful, but he's also just, and we are not the good people. And our sin is awful, and the door is shut, and not everyone makes it aboard, and there is something to fear. Namely, a holy God. And this is the Bible that that God has given us to show us truth. You see, the book of Genesis is not simply about what happened, but it is a book that shows us what happens. And so as we end our time this morning, I would like just to read to you from Second Peter chapter 3. In verse 4, the Bible says, They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5 tells us, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But note verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10 tells us, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, today is very much like the days of Noah. The wrath has been warned. Judgment is coming. First was by water, then will be by fire. But today, what does he do? Well, he waits. He waits. In fact, we, we skipped a verse there in Second Peter for verse 8 of chapter 3 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting. 
Out of great long-suffering and patience, he's delaying justice, giving you an opportunity to trust him and to love him and to be saved by him. He offers grace. Today, I can tell you, on the authority of God's word, the door is open. You may come aboard today. It is not shut. God's grace is offered to you, and his grace is great, but it is not unending. Jesus declared, as was read for us this morning 2,000 years ago, just as it was in the day of, days of Noah, so it will be at my coming. In fact, in Luke 13, Christ will say, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When at once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, open to us. He will answer, I do not know you. And the door will never be opened. You see, when Christ comes, the door is shut. Or if he waits even longer, when you die, the door will be shut. And you will stand before a holy God. I don't know if he's going to give you 120 years. Maybe 120 days, I don't know. But I do know there's a day coming which I and you shall stand before a righteous and holy God. I, as mentioned earlier in my message, I think this ought to give us Christians great joy. I know that we look at passages like this and it doesn't look like a joyful passage. There's a weightiness to it. There's a sobriety to it. But can we not say as we look at this, I can't believe I made it aboard. I can't believe I'm saved. I can't believe I've escaped the wrath of God for my sin. And the response that this should create in your heart, Christian, is a response of praise and worship and thanks. It's a response of obedience and trust and joy. And when we're surrounded by the mockers and scoffers that increasingly fill our land and say there is no God, there is no judgment, and there is no coming of Christ, you know how you should feel towards them? You should not hate them, nor should you despise them. But as Christ has shown us, you must love them. As Christ has taught us, you must invite them. And as Christ has called us to know you are not better than them. You have got grace. You have found favor. And you have fled to Christ our ark that saves us from the wrath of God. He who died on a cross because the wrath had to be poured out somewhere. Our sin had to be punished and Christ said, I will take it. I will drink down the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. I shall swallow the water that should submerge you. I will take it. And three days later, he rose from the grave and then with nail-pierced hands says, will you receive grace? I have done all the work for you. Will you just bend your knee to me as your king and receive the grace I offer you? You see, Christ is our ark. He is the one who saves us from the wrath of God. And in that day, the only thing that mattered was whether you were on the boat. You see, my fear is that there are many people who sit in pews day after day and and they, they admire Jesus. Just like I trust there were people in Noah's day who admired the ark, but never got aboard and therefore perished. There are many who sit in pews in our day who have no facts about Jesus, are aware of him. Just like people in Noah's day were aware of the ark, 
knew all sorts of facts about it, but never got aboard and therefore perish. I think there are people in our day who, who intend to come to Jesus. One day I'll come. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. One day. I wonder if there were people in Noah's day who said, oh, one day I'm going to help him build that boat. One day I'm going to get aboard. But none did. And they perished. All that matters is if you are in Christ. Perhaps there's one here this morning that says, I'll come one day. What are you waiting for? What's holding you back? He invites you today. We know not what tomorrow brings. Perhaps it's pride. Perhaps everybody thinks you're bored. But you know this very moment through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you are not His. Will you not speak to me this morning after service? Will you not find an elder and say, I need Christ that we may pray together? And that he may save you. Christ told Noah, God told Noah, come into the ark. The Bible tells us in Isaiah, come all who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The Bible ends in Revelation chapter 22 with these words, the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears come. Whoever is thirsty, let them now come. Let us pray that God would do that good work even today. Father, we pray for our friend here this morning that does not know you, that, that knows they are keeping you at arm's distance, and maybe no one else knows it, but they realize there is no love for Jesus in their heart. There is no desire to pursue him and follow him. And I pray that you would you would shake him or her, that they would care less about what others think, and the only thing that would occupy them this very moment is what you think, and that they may find your salvation. I, I pray for my, my friends here who, who have said they have given their life to Christ, maybe even prayed a prayer some time ago, and yet have, have not lived a life of obedience, perhaps have not even taken that first step of obedience following you in baptism. Will you not work in their life? Will you not produce obedience in their hearts that would confirm their faith, that would give them proof, give them assurance that they truly do believe? And for us, Father, who know you as our Savior and God, know that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, will you not today give us a great awe of our salvation? Will you not, in light of the fearsome and terrible wrath in which you outpoured and the wrath, aware of the wrath that is coming, will you not help us Christians, us who have been have found favor by you, be filled with great awe and reverence and joy and jubilation and worship and adoration? Will you not produce within us a stability that no matter what comes our way, no matter what hardship awaits us as we exit these doors, that we know the wrath of God has been poured elsewhere and that we have his grace and therefore eternal life forevermore with him. Will you please help us to be people of joy and stability, passionate about those who would, who would live next to us in our workplaces and our neighborhoods and who you would bring into our lives that they too would know Know the joy and the salvation that we have received. Help us to be your people. Help us to obey you in all that you ask, we pray 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stay.